Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Welcome to the Health Upgrade Podcast. This is Dr. Habib, and I'm really excited about today's episode. Just got finished recording with Dr. Marie Ev Tremblay, who is an absolutely wonderful researcher out of the University of Victoria, whose focus is on microglial cell function and the function of microglial cells throughout the entirety of life. This was an absolutely amazing episode that I recorded alongside my co-host JP Erico, and we learned a ton. We got a lot of really amazing tidbits of information and some really wonderful stats from Dr. Maria Tremblay. I hope you enjoy this episode. She was absolutely wonderful and we're excited to potentially work with her in the future. But for now, let's get into this wonderful episode with Dr. Marie Eve Tremblay. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marie Eve. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. It's really an honor to be here and hopefully I can help understanding a bit more how these brain microglia work in health and disease. It's wonderful. So I think JP is here as well with me today, and we would love to learn a little bit about your work and how you kind of got into the work that you're doing initially. And then we have a few amazing questions for you as well. Yes. Well, thank you. Something I can mention how I got into all this work as a graduate student, I was really interested in understanding how the brain allows us to grow, to change to push forward our limits. I think it was quite stressful being a graduate student. I was constantly learning and changing myself. And I was curious a lot about plasticity. I was studying at that time interactions between astrocytes and other important glial cells at the synapse. And I was really curious about microglia. There was nothing about these cells in textbooks, nothing about microglia in the literature during development during normal physiological conditions, a little bit of work in disease, trying to kill microglia. So it was really mysterious for me. And I wanted to also mention at that time, I was doing a lot of electron microscopy. And with this technique, you see all the cells. They're all visible. You don't need a special stain to visualize the cells. Problem with stainings and fluorescent microscopy, for instance, you only see what you label and you miss everything else. With EM, I was able to see these microglia and I was so curious about their role. So in my postdoc, I decided to study microglia, how they interact with synapses during normal physiological conditions in the healthy brain and how that could be regulated by the environment, the experience, and in turn, uh, regulate plasticity, learning, memory. So this is all how it all started (laughs) to make a a quick story. (laughs) Interesting, because it it actually parallels the work of the man, I'll butcher his name, Koff, who actually discovered microglial cells. It was a function of his use of a new staining technique that allowed him to see them. And, and as a result, he was able to recognize their different functions and different behaviors, which allowed him to be the, the discoverer of it. And now you have using a new, not a new technique, but applying a, a technique to be able to see things in a different way. We're able to make some really, truly wonderful uh, breakthroughs in our understanding of microglial cells. 
Well, thank you so much, JP. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that technological advancement is always critical to making discoveries. And in this case, it was an old established techniques from the 60s, electron microscopy. And I use immunostaining to visualize microglia to be sure 100% that the cells I was seeing with EM were really microglia. And this allowed to study the, the interactions of their fine processes with all the elements in the brain parenchyma, including synapses. And in this work, I discovered that 94% of microglial processes in the healthy brain interact with synapses. So that was quite novel, and this really changed my career. Absolutely. It's an amazing process that you've been able to elucidate for everyone. And it's not the only thing you've done. That's just one of several truly amazing advances that you've given us. But let's step back to sort of the formation of the brain. One of the things that Dr. Habib and I have talked about on prior episodes is the role of microglial cells in the actual formation and building of the brain, which is probably the most complicated machine in all of the universe. So these little workhorses that you've elucidated so well have, quite, have done quite a bit. Tell our audience how you view the construction of the brain. How does it happen and what roles do microglial cells play? Obviously, they play quite a bit, but do you find to be the most important or the most intriguing? Yeah, well, excellent question. I think microglia are important at many, many levels during brain development, but not only the brain, also the spinal cord and all the central nervous system. They start to migrate into the brain very early on. As soon as the vasculature is formed, microglia, they come from the embryonic yolk sac, they enter the brain. Then they are important for the formation of the different cells in the brain. The glial cells, the neurons, microglia are important by releasing trophic factors. And the way the, the brain develops is that, well, first there's a formation of cells, they need to migrate, and then they start wiring, connecting together. And microglia are involved in all these different processes at all these different steps. And also the way it works is that circuits that are functionally active are retained, cells that are not active connections, synapses that are not active are also eliminated, and microglia are important for this refinement. So they are important for the formation of the cells, and then those not active, less important, they are pruned by microglia. So I think to explain briefly, these are important roles of microglia. But something that is also emerging is that from the early stages, when microglia infiltrate the brain through the vasculature, they are already active and they contribute to this vascular formation process. The vascularization of the brain is critical to provide nutrients, to provide oxygen to the developing brain, and microglia are important there. They contribute with trophic factors to the formation of the vessels and then their refinement according to the local needs in and energy. Uh, another role that was discovered recently, I mentioned this pattern of connections between the neurons. Their formation is critical. Their refinement, according to the experience, allows for behavior. So that's really important. But there's also the myelination of the axons that allow for long-range connectivity between distant brain regions. So there's the local connections that are super important, but different connection, different regions of the brain need to speak to one another. Microglia are really important there. Even for the connections between the hemispheres, microglia are important from uh, 
the front to back and the reverse. And this has been a lot of neurodevelopmental disorder misconnections between these different regions and between the hemispheres as well. There's normally some inhibition of the two hemispheres. And when this goes wrong, there's a lot of mental disorders that can arise. So microglia are emerging as being critical in, I would say, all developmental steps. And it's still a little bit unclear how the development proceeds differently between regions of the central nervous system, between different regions of the brain and also the spinal cord. There are still so many questions to be answered. It's really a new field of research. We know a little bit enough to be convinced that it's important, but there are so many discoveries to be made. Absolutely. And one of the things that you mentioned is its role in, or the microglial cells role in the development of the network, and both at the, at the local level, as well as the global level with white matter tracks, et cetera. And one of the things that I found as I was doing work understanding angiogenesis and vasculogenesis outside of the brain, or actually inside and outside of the brain, is how similar the different steps are that are involved. There's first the building with angiogenesis, the building of the network, and the network is with the trophic factors built out to include many, many connections that ultimately aren't going to be there and aren't necessary. So there's, there's sort of a randomness, if you will, to the building of all sorts of different branches and twigs and, and leaves on this tree that's built. But then there's the next step of pruning away those aspects of that vasculature structure that aren't going to be used properly or can't be used properly. They clot off or don't carry blood in a way that's going to be useful. The same thing happens in the brain with the pruning away of synapses and connections that aren't necessary or aren't functioning. And you described it as a sensory, there's a sensory input and an activity input you know, that, that contributes to how that happens. Are there other functions of macrophages, because microglia are a form of macrophage, that you think of as a parallel to what's happening in the central nervous system, other than the vasculature, maybe in the lungs or in the kidneys or other, other tissue that you look to and you say, did researchers find something there that might be applicable in the brain? Yeah, excellent question. I think throughout the body, these tissue resident macrophages perform a lot of homeostatic functions, maintaining the balance of the internal environment within the organ. They perform surveillance, monitoring the surroundings, looking for signs of damage while performing physiological functions. I think these cells are not only randomly touching everything, but they, they can monitor based on different cues, the health status of the other cells, and they can intervene whenever needed, notably by releasing trophic factors or performing phagocytosis. So that's another function I wanted to mention that these tissue resident macrophages use a lot, this engulfment of, for instance, pathogens or dysfunctional cells, toxic debris that can be found in the extracellular environment, microglia can do the same. They are really important for maintaining the quality of our brain environment. They perform this quality check, this monitoring. Whenever something goes wrong, they are there to intervene at the earliest signs of homeostatic disturbance. And they have different mediators that they can use to intervene. They can use traffic factors, as I mentioned, if they want to promote growth. They can also use cytokines, which are inflammatory mediators, something I, I will explain a little bit further. 
and they can use this phagocytosis to remove. And there's different modes of phagocytosis. It's a little bit complex, but the overall goal is to remove, is to digest elements that need to be removed, whether it's parts of vessels, whether it's synapses or entire neurons that are dying, or perhaps just to go back also to the inflammation, I wanted to say that this refers to the activity of the immune system. Inflammation often has a negative connotation, but it's not bad or good. It really depends on the context. So inflammation is this activity generally mediated by cytokines. And there's many physiological that were identified for these inflammatory mediators, including synaptic plasticity, this change in the wiring of the connections between the neurons that allows to adapt to the environment, that allows to learn, to remember. So this is super critical. And it's mediated, for instance, by tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF-alpha, an important cytokine. And with this inflammation, what matters is the balance between the different mediators and uh, their outcome, which really depends um, on the context as I mentioned, can be beneficial or detrimental. And it's also a function that is shared with other tissue-resident macrophages across the body. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I'm glad you made it, that inflammation is sometimes used or defined too broadly. And that what we need to do is be a little more specific, maybe coming up with different terms or different descriptions that describe different levels of activity. So for example, and this is a question I was going to have, so I really should phrase it like one, that when you say that the microglial cells are in the surveillance mode, they're very active. They have many, many processes. You, you point out that 94% of those processes are touching synapses, which is really remarkable. And it really goes to show that that's one of the primary functions of microglial cells. But microglial cells will change their morphology um, substantially bringing in those, those processes and becoming more amoeboid shape when they become what would be sort of more pro-inflammatory. But again, I don't want to use that term, maybe, maybe defensive, maybe becoming more focused on external pathogens or you know, other damage that's been done versus doing things to maintain the homeostasis or being trophic in that they're trying to build the, the network. So the question really is, it's not so much the cytokine that's being released that defines the state of the microglial cell. It's really the overall behavior of that microglial cell and what it's doing. So for example, as you were describing, and as I understand from what I've read of your writings, when microglial cells release TNF-alpha or IL-1 or other, what are otherwise considered pro-inflammatory mediators, they may be doing that in the context of doing something that's actually not typically prototypically called inflammatory. They're using those mediators to promote a behavior that's actually neurodevelopmentally positive and it, it's building. Can you give us some examples of, of that that exists in neurodevelopment or in and differentiate between things that can go neurodevelopmentally wrong versus what's happening that's right? Because that's, you know, that can be somewhat confusing. Yeah, excellent question. Something I see sometimes is that microglia are best understood in their context. Context makes a, a whole difference. And what really matters indeed is the function of these cells, not so much which mediator they are expressing. And also there was a terminology used in the past that that is now rejected, the M1 and the M2, and because it's too simplistic. We cannot understand microglia based only on a series of markers. And in some contexts, microglia can co-express M1 and M2 markers 
markers. So at the end, this was re rejected. An example I wanted to give of a function that is beneficial during development, but that can go wrong and cause damage in other contexts is, for instance, synaptic pruning. This phagocytosis of synapses. Uh, during development, it's required for the refinement of the neuronal circuits based on the external environment, based on the experience. There are some mediators that were uh, found to be involved, for instance, fractalkine signaling. Fractalkine is a chemokine, a chemoattractant cytokine released by neurons. It has a unique receptor. CX3CR1 expressed by microglia. This pathway is important for this pruning process. There's also the classical complement cascade, which is very important. There's a lot of treatment strategies being developed acting on this pathway. There's also TREM2, a phagocytic receptor expressed by microglia in this synaptic pruning process. But if we think of another context, if we think of, for instance, exposure to environmental risk factors for disease, if we think of stress, infection, aging, and uh, also neurodegenerative diseases, same mediators become upregulated. In this context, microglia also do elimination of synapses, but this is rather detrimental, leading to synaptic loss, not contributing to this homeostatic refinement of circuits, experience-dependent plasticity required for learning and memory, but in this context, causing synaptic loss, which is the best pathological correlate to cognitive decline across so many disease conditions. So, so it's really to study different pathways, but to keep in mind the context. If we think of treatments acting on fractal kind signaling, complement pathway, TREM2, there's a lot of drug development at the moment for Alzheimer's disease, for instance. We need to think that they will be administered in a context-specific manner. Just a, a small parenthesis on that. But I think th this is an example of function that can have a di different uh, role depending on the context. Yeah, we've spent a little bit of time discussing the, the signals that are find me, eat me, yeah. or don't eat me signals, and the fractaline signaling and the complement signaling and the TREM2 signaling are all part of that. So yeah. I think our audience has, if they've listened to that podcast, they've got some sense of it. But I know that that's so close and near, dear, near and dear to what you've been working on. Let's go back to the developmental stage again, as opposed to going to the other end of life, the neurodegenerative disorders that you were mentioning. But in development, there are neurodevelopmental problems that can occur. And a lot of them have been associated with either maternal or early childhood exposure to what I call distracting influences on the microglial cells. So things that lead the microglial cells to stop doing the pruning or to prime them to over prune the network. And as a result, it leads to pathologies. You know, some of them, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, and, and have worked on things like autism and bipolar disorder and ADHD. How do you see modulators of inflammation being potentially um, at play in the either the prevention or potentially the, the cause of autism? And the reason I ask is that actually it just was on my way home from dropping my kids at school the other morning and I was listening to something on the radio and there was an advertisement recruiting people to file a lawsuit over, I think it was a Tylenol and the fact that they've linked Tylenol to autism. And I was thinking to myself, well, is it truly the cause is the, is the, the Tylenol or is it the fact that people needed the Tylenol because they had a systemic inflammation and they were using the Tylenol to treat their fever or the pain, but it's actually the inflammation that led to 
the the higher incidence of autism. I just wanted to get your sense about that. Yeah, that's also a great question. We are doing some research on maternal immune activation, this uh, inflammation during pregnancy that affects the, well, the development, right, of the offspring and microglia, uh, I think, are, are critical in linking inflammation, like in the periphery and outcomes on brain development. Uh, I can speak more about that. I just wanted to mention briefly that, yeah, I think it's really a good question. Is it the, the, the treatment, the problem or the inflammation? And we need activity of inflammatory mediators. So if we suppress inflammation, that's deleterious. Even when, well, we can think also, for instance, uh, about probiotics and we can think of antibiotics. So everything also acting on, on the gut, right? It's a little bit similar. So we need we, we need a proper balance of these different gut metabolites. And if there is infection, is it better to treat with an antibiotic, even if it will have outcomes on, on the gut or what is worse, <laughs> the infection or the treatment? I think it's a little bit similar here and it's still unclear. I think there is really strong evidence that some interleukins like IL-17 are really important for mediating the outcomes of maternal immune activation on the brain and behavior, notably by acting on microglia. I think it could be desirable to have some treatment acting on cytokines during a short period of time. Not too long, we don't want to completely suppress their action, but maybe just to reverse the outcomes of some environmental challenges. Yeah, I think that could be good. When we think of maternal immune activation, it can be caused by even sleep disturbances, unhealthy diets, uh, bacterial, viral infection, stress. There are so many different causes of the increases in these cytokines. So I think there's more and more research trying to identify exactly which one and in which time window we should intervene. I think that acting on microglia could be also a promising strategy because if we think of cellular therapies, instead of acting on only one molecule, and then there's this tight balance between so many molecules within a whole constellation of mediators that needs to be maintained. And then if we change one, we alter everything. If we modify microglia, they know how to maintain health. They know how to build a brain. They know how to keep us plastic, how to keep us able to learn, to grow, to adapt to our environment. And they know how to preserve brain integrity even with aging. So I think that by acting on these cells, we will not affect only one molecule, but overall their function. There's a lot of research trying to understand what this inflammation is doing exactly to microglia, how that leads to alterations of the brain and behavior. I mentioned earlier this synaptic pruning. It's one of the mechanisms, but microglia... As I also mentioned earlier, they are important at so many different levels during development. Formation of neurons and glial cells, refinement in their number, connection, local, long range, uh, vascular formation and refinement, myelination. So I think it's really important to understand the roles of microglia in all these different processes and how that becomes altered with inflammation induced by maternal immune activation. And, and the hope is to keep microglia healthy with all that, to allow them to exert their beneficial roles, even in the face of inflammation. 
And something that JP mentioned I found really inter interesting was this distraction of microglia when there is a lot of inflammation, when there's alterations in the normal levels of these different mediators to which they respond, they become confused, they become lost. Microglia respond to gradients, notably of fractal kind, and they are guided in the brain while they survey, while they perform their roles by these gradients. Whenever this is changed, microglia lose track and are no more performing optimally there physiological roles during development. And microglia also, they are immune cells. We can think that they will become engaged in immune functions. There could be alterations of the blood-brain barrier, peripheral cells coming from the bone marrow and the circulation coming in. Microglia will need to deal with these cells to communicate with them, to instruct them regarding what to do in the brain. And something also we need to keep in mind is that microglia, they are important for the regulation also, not only in, in the development, but throughout life of the function of the activity of the glial cells and the neurons. So I think it will be likely deleterious on the brain and behavior if microglia become distracted in their critical functions. So one of the things that you've just talked about, about antibiotics, and obviously the effect that antibiotics have on the microbiome in the gut is, has an effect on the central nervous system. We know that. But there are certain antibiotics, I'm thinking about minocycline in particular, which has possibly a larger effect on the central nervous system and specifically on microglial cells. Is there any reason to believe that minocycline, when used during pregnancy, because it has having a direct, what's typically been called a sort of an anti-inflammatory effect on microglial cells. And that may not be a correct way of describing the effect it has, but it's been used that way. Does that have a disruptive effect on neurodevelopment? Because I know that there's been some papers by Ando and others out of Japan looking at possible ways to modulate microglial activity during either during maternal development or early in childhood to try to block the processes of under pruning that lead to autism. And there's been mixed results with that. Do you believe that the mixed results are a function of the fact that it just doesn't work that way, or it does work that way, but in effect, you're disrupting other things that the microglial cells are doing? Excellent question. Regarding minocycline, we're also doing some research, meaning what it's doing. So I think if we think of also adult conditions, psychiatric disorders, major depression, also schizophrenia, it's showing really nice promising results when combined with conventional treatment as an add-on in clinical studies. But we know very little about its mechanisms of action related to microglia. What is really interesting with this drug is that it seems to normalize microglia. It doesn't suppress inflammation, doesn't prevent phagocytosis. It just normalizes levels. There are studies conducted in rodent models of maternal immune activation showing that when there was too much phagocytosis with some models, micro, uh, microglia treated with minocycline were able to have appropriate levels of phagocytosis. And in other contexts, there was uh, not enough phagocytosis, minocycline was increasing it. And it's the same with inflammation. When there's too little or too much, it's able to normalize the levels. So that's why I think it's so promising because we don't want to suppress inflammation. We don't want to stop phagocytosis. Phagocytosis is beneficial or detrimental depending on context, depending on the cargo that is being removed as well. The goal is to have normal, healthy levels 
of these functions. For minocycline, there's really, I think, compelling for individuals treated with minocycline during adolescence for acne, showing that there is much less incidence than of schizophrenia. Quite interesting. For development prenatal, I think we are lacking evidence at this stage to understand exactly if it has the same functions than in mature microglia than in adulthood. I don't know yet what's the outcome of administering minocycline during pregnancy, something we need to look at in the lab. I think that will be really, really important. And then what's the outcome on uh, disorders emerging during childhood, like autism, for instance, that will be so, so, so important to tell. Yeah, I'd love to I, ask a, a quick question yeah. with regards to enteric nervous system cells and activation of microglia. You mentioned the microbiome a little bit, and I'd love to talk a little bit about intestinal hyperpermeability as being a potential trigger for microglial activation, both enteric nervous system and in the central nervous system. Have you come across any particular practical reasons for why that might be occurring? Uh, That's an excellent question. Thank you, Dr. Habib. I'm not so sure, unfortunately. Um, Something I know is the effect of different uh, metabolites from the gut on the maturation of microglia, also on their activity at steady state in health and in response to challenges. I'm not sure what's the link with the intestinal uh, mobility. It will be super interesting to find out in the future. Very important question. Going back to the use of minocycline, which is developed, was originally developed as an antibiotic and yeah. the effects on microglial cells were really only sort of an ancillary finding. Um, it sounds to me like the way you're describing its effect is not necessarily to suppress inflammation, it's to normalize microglial cell a- activity back to its appropriate function. And so I think about it as like removing the distraction, bringing it back to its normal normal function. Are there other medications or other techniques that have the potential to maybe do that better uh, and do that in a way that where that is really the primary function of the therapy? I, you know, I'm speaking about that in part because we talk a lot about the autonomic nervous system and the ability of the Im- immune reflex to modulate um, microglial activity. Um, but are there others that you're looking at or that others are looking at that you think are equally promising or more promising than minocycline? Good question. If we think of non-pharmacological treatment, I think that acting on the lifestyle is one element that is really promising. For instance, all activity, relaxation, meditation, socialization, healthy diet. Diet is a powerful modulator of microglia, including the omega-3s. For instance, we also do work in the lab on ketogenic diets, and we found that it's so beneficial in terms of promoting stress resilience and promoting beneficial microglial functions, notably in the context of chronic social stress. Um, And if not, if we think of what these different lifestyle uh, elements are doing, uh, they are all acting also on the vagus nerve. So I think this stimulation is really interesting as a way to uh, normalize inflammation on a systemic level and to promote beneficial microglial activities to normalize their phagocytosis, for instance, their surveillance, uh, to help them keep beneficial physiological functions across different challenges. Yeah, we've spent some time on this podcast talking about some of the recent work that's been done looking at the effects of vagus nerve stimulators like implantable devices that are used for depression and for epilepsy that they're showing cognitive benefits because some of the 
some of the uh, maybe underreported consequences of having major mood disorder or epilepsy are cognitive problems. And that's also true in obesity and other things that have inflammatory components to them, that they seem to cause cognitive problems. But vagus nerve stimulation appears to, when used therapeutically to treat those problems, seems to demonstrate a restoration of cognitive function and a reduction in the dysfunction that is associated with those conditions. More recently, there's actually been some work done by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the United States looking at in healthy normals, adults, healthy normal adults, looking to see whether or not there's cognitive improvement in terms of a learning ability. So obviously affecting hippocampal activity and whether or not even under stressful circumstances, lack of sleep or stress, whether or not vagus nerve stimulation can enhance cognitive function. And it appears the early results seem to show that the answer is yes, and that people actually have the ability to not only form memories, but efficiently be able to recall them and apply that knowledge in a way that's, you know, beneficial. So, you know, it sounds a little bit Star Trek-y and super, you know, like science fiction-y, but it appears that the biggest nerve stimulation may have that effect. And it's really a question. I think it's a function of how it's affecting microglial cells. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, excellent question. I think probably yes. Difficulty at the moment is to have adequate rodent models to study the effects of the vagal nerve stimulation, to have models that are translational and that really reproduce the human situation. I'm part of a project at the moment looking at deep brain stimulation, a little bit different, but we are using macaque monkey, thinking it's a more translational model versus rodents. So I think work in monkeys would be interesting, but what I feel would really advance the field would be to use PET scan with microglia, microglia specific specific radio tracers and th that allow to visualize their function in real time, in a chronic manner, longitudinal, before the stimulation, over time with the stimulation and to see how that normalizes microglia. I, I think that if we are able to show how it's acting a little bit like my nociclone, wow, it's doing these amazing things at the clinic, but we don't know the mechanism here. It's the same. We don't know what it's doing to microglia that will really advance the field. And I think people will be likely convinced if there's beneficial effects on microglia that it can be employed across various conditions in which microglia were found to be dysfunctional and to, to cause a damage and pathology. Yeah, excellent question. And also, if I may, I wanted to also emphasize that the various conditions affecting the brain throughout life are related to inflammation. Now, it's really clear that inflammation is an oxidative stress also at the cellular level are observed in all these conditions. And when we think oxidative stress, inflammation, likely there's microglial dysfunction. And these cells are beneficial immune cells able to keep us healthy. So I think a goal is really to study the effect of not only the environmental risk factors and disease pathology on these cells, but especially promising treatment strategies. There should be more research and more funding for this type of research would be really amazing. I couldn't agree more. There should be more research funding for this. Let's talk about some of the neurodegenerative conditions and how they function and how microglial cells play a role there. One of the big conditions, obviously, that people are very uh, interested in, especially given how much more prevalent it is, is Alzheimer's disease. And you know, for many, many years, the focus has been on beta amyloid and the aggregates of this protein and whether or not that's really truly the driver of the disease. My personal perspective is it's much like cholesterol. 
it's not so much that cholesterol is bad, it's more how your immune system responds to it that's the problem. And you know, evidence seems to show, at least as far as I've read, that when you look at an older person, even a person who's very active and very much still creative, productive, et cetera, if you were to measure the level of, of aggregates of beta amyloid, you'd likely see just as many as a person who has you know, florid Alzheimer's disease. And really the issue is how is the immune system, is it tolerant or is it reactive to the beta amyloid? So first to get your thoughts on that, but then as we think about when the microglial cells become reactive to the beta amyloid or to whatever else it might be becoming reactive to, one of the things that we've speculated about is that it isn't so much that the microglial cells become pro-inflammatory. It's actually that they revert back to their developmental stage of becoming active pruners of the network. And that by actually, by becoming sort of reverting back to childhood and becoming so active in, in their pruning that they digest away through phagocytosis and trogocytosis away the synapses. And that's where you end up with that loss of connectivity. And the reason why it's so important to remain active and because it's really just still a sensory and an activity dependent pruning process. Am, am I completely off or is, is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. I would like also to mention that, well, this amyl is an antiviral response. It's an antiviral agent. And there's a lot of emerging evidence showing that previous viral infections will translate into these amyloid plaques. It's like a scar resulting from these previous fights against viral infection entering the brain. And this is, I think, a huge distractor to the microglia. These amyloid plaques, they play several roles related to the plaques, the phagocytos, amyloid they compact the plaque also making them smaller, hopefully preserving better neuronal and glial functions around the plaque. Also, the, as JP mentioned, microglia are important in Alzheimer's at synapses, in this case, in a detrimental manner, contributing to synaptic loss. Phagocytosis, there's also trogocytosis. It's a specialized phagocytosis where microglia will nibble small pieces of synaptic elements. And this is sufficient to completely change the geometry of the synap synapses, to completely change their structure. Strength. strength of the connection is directly related to their shape. So this can have a huge impact on cognition. Microglia, I think, are yeah, quite distracted by all these things, and then they are less able to maintain a healthy brain environment. Something that is emerging a lot in Alzheimer's, amyloid plaques can be found in healthy individuals over time, also in people diagnosed with the disease. But there is metabolic alteration in Alzheimer's that seems quite specific, I guess, to this condition versus other forms of cognitive decline, it's considered as a brain manifestation of metabolic disorder, Alzheimer's. And this change in metabolism affects a lot microglia. Uh, microglia are so active, they play so many essential roles. So when there's this metabolic alteration, I think they are one of the first to suffer. And then uh, there's huge outcomes on brain energy metabolism and on cognitive performance. It was shown, for instance, for the microglia that there's a switch from this oxidative phosphorylation, highly efficient at producing ATP to glycolysis. 
This happens when the cells are stressed, undergoing oxidative stress, when the mitochondria are compromised, and then they are suffering in terms of having less energy. And uh, this glycolysis also will affect even more the function of the mitochondria. So it's a little bit like a, a vicious circle. There is a particular type also of microglia that we're studying a lot. We name them dark microglia. These cells, we found that they are very abundant during normal, healthy brain development, which was quite surprising. And they play important roles at vessels, synapses, with relation to myelinated axons. And then there's a lot of these cells coming back. Kuglia can proliferate, so they can, they can become more abundant depending on the environmental needs. And then there's a lot of these dark microglia that are in a state of glycolysis and expressing TREM2. Um, just wanted to maybe finish by saying that when we think of uh, amyloid, increasing the production of amyloid are mainly for, uh, found in the genetic form of Alzheimer's, which affects about 5% of the patients. The other patients suffer from sporadic or late onset forms, 95% of the patients. And before it was unclear how the disease emerges in these sporadic forms. It's linked to environmental risk factors, age being the first one, also stress, unhealthy diets, sleep disturbances, altered metabolism. But now there is a lot of genetic variants affecting the function of microglia, including TREM2, that are being linked to this sporadic form of Alzheimer's. So it seems like restoring beneficial microglial functions will, will be really critical to prevent the cognitive decline. Hopefully microglia will uh, not only have to deal with plaques, but they can also perform all their many other roles in this context. Have you found anything with regards to the presence of lipopolysaccharide? LPS in those plaques as being a trigger for hyperactivation of those microglia at all? Yeah, excellent question. Well, there is really nice work showing the role of the inflammasome, NLRP3 inflammasome, which cannot be triggered by this inflammogen. And then that will yeah trigger the plaque. The plaques are a reaction of a defense reaction against it seems these viral infections in the brain. So I think that acting perhaps on viral infection, well, on the lifestyle for sure, metabolism, treating well in a timely manner, I guess viral infections would be a key. Maintaining microglia healthy would also be a super critical. And something also being criticized a lot about vaccines against amyloid is that we're acting way too late. We're acting when it's a full, like a fire of the forest. We're not like blowing out the match that started the fire. So we need to act early on. Inflammation in the short term is beneficial. The problem is when it's becoming chronic. So early on, when there's these challenges during life, even in middle age, I think it's perhaps earlier, if possible, would be the right time to intervene to make sure microglia stay healthy in the face of different life challenges. When everything is on fire, then it's a little bit too late. Yeah, in fact, by the time the symptoms of myocognitive impairment have already begun, it's true that, or at least as far as I've read and worked with other researchers about, that the locus ceruleus has already been diminished in size by you know, 50 to 70%. So there's a disruption of neurotransmitter availability to modulate microglial cells. But going back to what you said about viral, you know, a viral response of amyloid beta is sort of a, a response to viruses and tying together, believe it or not, iron metabolism and the role that microglial cells play in iron metabolism and dark microglial cells in glycolysis versus sort of more standard mitochondrial ATP. The 
and bring COVID into the situation. So we've got people who've had COVID, which triggers a systemic inflammatory response. And the more severe that trigger systemic inflammatory response seems to correlate with the extent to which they experience long COVID. And one of the principal things about long COVID is this cognitive function uh, or dysfunction that they experience, this brain fog experience. And so I'm sort of linking in my head, you've got the viral response, you've got the microglial, the impact on microglial cells and their iron metabolism. And iron metabolism is so important with respect to energy metabolism in cells. How in your mind do those things link together to lead to either brain fog or early stage, early onset or an accelerated onset of degeneration? Yeah, excellent question. Well, I'm not exactly sure, of course, how all that is linked. When we think of brain fog, first, it reminds me of this sickness behavior. When there's a lot of inflammation, a brain outcome is this sickness behavior where, where we feel uh, less sociable, where we isolate to regain our energy, where we feel tired, where where we feel uh, overall sick, uh, which is a bit, um, I think, related to anxiety, depression, and is found in so many uh, uh, conditions with inflammation. But uh, e- exactly how that leads to cognitive decline, I think probably via microglia. If we think of microglia being stressed, being metabolically altered, I'm also thinking of iron, dark microglia, they contain iron, it's still unpublished, but I think all the pieces of puzzle can be linked together. Probably these dark microglia are one of the key. We think that they come from a normal microglia that that transform into this hyperactive state. They they play so many critical functions. These cells are important. But by having these dark microglia, exhausted, tired, stress, compromised, I think we this could be part of the sickness behavior. We tried before looking at a single challenge with polysaccharide to see if there would be dark microglia. We did not find them. It seems like chronic challenges are required. And then this makes me think of long-term consequences of viral infection, long COVID, for instance. I, and this metabolic disorder that we spoke about, the brain manifestation being linked to Alzheimer's and fatigue and overall this sickness behavior. I think these dark cells might be a key, something we're actively investigating. Um, And maybe a last thing to mention regarding this is that there's a lot of uh, discussions around the concept of senescence. Uh, senescent microglia, that they are also quite important for the, the development of Alzheimer's, cognitive aging, many disease conditions now. And there's treatments, there's senolytics that can be used to get rid of these cells. Features of senescent microglia include the accumulation of iron, the change in metabolism, and a lot of features of dark microglia. So we have a, a new research project that just started with funding from the Canadian Institutes of Health Research looking at characterizing senescent microglia across the lifespan with relation to viral infection, especially with HSV1, which is linked to Alzheimer's disease. And then we're going to study the effects of senolytic treatments on the brain behavior. We'll see what happens and we'll determine if these senescent cells are are dark, among other things. Well, it sounds like I I might have let the cat out of the bag a little bit with respect to iron accumulation in microglial cells, but it was just, it was something that we've talked about a little bit on the, on the podcast. So I look forward to reading that when it is published, it sounds like an exciting line of research. It's been absolutely fascinating talking with you. And I would love to find out if there's a way to work together because there are tools that we've developed for using 
vagus nerve stimulation in rodent models that can be used to test. I'd love to test in a maternal inflammation model whether or not we could alter the neurodevelopmental pathway of animals that would otherwise experience autism-like behavior, whether or not maternal use of vagus nerve stimulation might be able to block the effects of LPS administration, other things. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would also love to conduct this research, this research. Let's keep in touch. That sounds absolutely amazing. It was really my pleasure to, to discuss today. And I hope we will, of course, follow up. <laughs> thank you. Absolutely. Look forward to doing that. Yes, we want to honor your time, but thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot. I think we got some wonderful information from you, up and coming research, emerging trends, and we're really honored that you were able to join us and share such wonderful insights with us today. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. thank you. I'm a huge fan. You are doing phenomenal work and I'd be happy. I'd be honored to work with you if there's any way that we could collaborate. Sounds excellent. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Have a great afternoon. Yeah, thank you. We'll keep in touch.